It turns out that life on the allotment is a balancing act. Just when you think you've got on top of all four ingredients that you're about to cruise to the finish line, something happens that threatens to undo some of that hard work and, ultimately, my chances of producing a beer. It was never going to be that easy, was it, really? I'm Ben Richards, and in partnership with There's a Beer for That, this is Growing Beer. join me on a warm sunny day in mid-June and I've decided to set up camp outside of Richard in between the barley beds. It's just me and the grasshoppers at the moment. It's been about six weeks since we last spoke but so much has happened in that time. This episode we're going to see how the allotment is faring now that the summer isn't far away. I've got some updates on the ingredients that we've looked at already so that's the water, the barley, the hops and I think I found a way to sort out the yeast problem and we'll see how my position atop the hierarchy of danger has a challenger, the British weather. But let's start off with the plot, shall we? It is in full bloom now. Uh, everything is growing. Everything has taken off and has gone a bit mad. Uh, the bed I'm not allowed to touch has all manner of veggies and salad bits coming up. And every corner of the allotment has got something going on. I've put some grass seed down in front of Richard. So hopefully by the summer, I'll have a nice little patch of turf to put my feet up, enjoy a beer and survey my limited but hopefully ripening kingdom. Following on from last week's episode then, uh, let's start with the first ingredient, uh, water. Well, the bank holiday at the end of May was an absolute washout, just torrential rain for the entire weekend. It was amazing. I was sat here in Richard just listening to that sound of cancelled barbecues, uh, of ruined plans and of bored children driving their parents absolutely mad. I have not been that happy in a long time. After the, oh, I can only call drought for the first three months of the year, to have that thorough soaking was absolutely wonderful. Now this should have meant that I could collect loads and loads of water, but after the first day, I checked the water butt and it had got barely more than an inch or so in it. It hadn't seemed to have moved since I put it in. Uh, so I, I checked the guttering, uh, I checked the downpipe, and, and I suspected this could be the problem because I've cobbled it together from various different uh, bits that I found um, around um, my house and my father-in-law's house. So I stripped it all down, glued it back together again and fixed it, put it in again. And then the next day I came down after rain overnight and in the afternoon and there was still no more water in the water butt. It was then I thought I'd test it with a watering can to see where the leak was coming from. And I found the leak, that's the good news. Uh, except it wasn't so much a leak, it was more just a tap was open and I hadn't closed it since installing the water butt quite a few weeks ago. So now I've closed that, it's collecting water and uh, <laughs> hopefully that will start to fill up nicely. And the barley. The barley is looking very, very nice. It is looking very green now. It's, it's crazy how fast it's grown since that downpour at the end of April, early May. Uh, last time we spoke, it was coming up in little patches, tiny little clumps that are only a few centimetres high. They were starting to spread out a little bit, but not too much. Well, just in those six weeks, they've absolutely shot up. They've tillered really well. And by that, I mean that each seed hasn't just produced one shoot or one sort of blade coming up. It produces lots. So hopefully, each of those seeds will produce several ears of barley come the harvest. But we're now standing about 50 centimetres tall, I'd say. And in the lines with the best growth, I can just about see the little awns sticking out. And that's the little feathery bits on the end of the ear, which means that just beneath this, surrounded by a little blade of grass, is the grain getting ready to come out soon and make an appearance. It's very exciting. 
Because of the patchiness of the growth, the weeds have established themselves throughout the beds a little bit, especially near the hedge and right in the middle of the main barley bed where I can't reach to, to keep on top of it. So I don't think I'm going to be able to keep them under control. I'm just going to have to accept that I'll get a bit less barley in that area, I think. Uh, the combination of an initially weed-laden soil and uneven sowing has given them a window and they've really taken their chance. Oh, there's one in particular that's driving me mad at the moment. It's the bindweed. I'm so glad I put all the time in to get it out of the barley beds uh, in January, February, March. Because as you see little bits come up that we must have missed when we're doing the first digging, it kind of snakes up the barley. It, it, it wraps itself around the top. It then sort of leans over, grabs another one, and another one, and another one, and it grows, and it pulls them all down. And it's like this little python dragging individual <laughs> barley plants down to the ground it's uh i can get most of it i can get in there and just snip off the ones on the edges but it's the ones right in the middle that i can see it i can't walk through the barley to get to it and it's just heartbreaking it's like a, a bbc nature documentary you know what's going to happen and you're totally powerless to stop it but fingers crossed that's only going to affect a little bit of the barley uh, not nowhere near all of it that said though on a day like this when the sun is shining the grasshoppers are chirping away it is a very nice place to be. So, hops. It's not quite been that positive, if I'm honest. It's been a really mixed few weeks for them, and this is where things start to take a turn for the worse. Now, the growth is really impressive. They have absolutely flown up the strings. They've been twisting round and round with the sun each day, uh, their big leaves fanning out to catch the light, and the laterals, which are the, the side shoots that very quickly sort of shoot out and wrap around the other lines, they've, they've come out all over the place. So there's really, really vigorous, thick growth across the plants. In fact, it's so impressive that it's taking a lot of work to keep them in order. And it is becoming very, very clear that my hot pole is a poor structure. It's bearing up, but there's definitely a lean going on as more of the hops get towards the top and add to the weight of it. Now I checked when putting it up, it was really strong. I, I really leant back on a rope and I'm, I'm a good 13 or so stone. But as the wind blows and it gets wet, it's gradually causing a bit of pressure on the top of the pole. And those canes that are used to provide the last sort of four or five feet or so of height, they're gently leaning in. I'm hoping it's not going to be too much of a problem, but this site is actually quite exposed. Where I am in the corner of the allotment, it feels very, very sheltered. I've got big hedges and trees no more than 20, 30 feet away from the bottom of the allotments. But the wind really does come up from the coast. It whips up the valley and then hits this hill. It's noticeable when you're up here in the wind what kind of impact it does have. It, it started to show a little bit, so I'm not panicking, but I am keeping an eye on it. And it also turns out that my structure is not that great because it's not a good idea to have a wigwam where the hops converge at the top. I expected really limited growth for the hops this year uh, because they're first year plants. There shouldn't be too much energy in those roots. I was expecting quite stunted growth really with a limited hop uh, yield. But the Fuggles and the Cascade are just monsters. <laughs> it's quite clear that without careful management or potentially even with careful management, I'm gonna get a big clump at the top. With, with hindsight, I should have gone for a small uh, row of poles uh, with lines running horizontally between them, like a fence or a trellis. This would have meant the hops uh, reach the top at different places and would have made it much easier to manage. Because a clump is a bad thing, I think. It, it's going to be hard to differentiate between the varieties. Uh, I run the risk of having a very top-heavy pole, and it's likely to create a little haven for aphids. 
um, which is a, a new consideration for me in my life. I've never had to give aphids any thought before, but they can do a fair bit of damage, especially to the young shoots as those grow. On the plus side though, it is pretty cool uh, when you stop and you look at them and you notice the little ecosystem that's going on. The aphids are everywhere, especially near the top, but they are not alone. There are a couple of ladybirds creeping in, which is great as they should eat them. They're a natural predator for the aphids. But stopping them from eating the aphids are the ants who are farming the aphids. And I had no idea that this kind of thing happened. Um, it's an awesome little symbiotic relationship uh, where the aphids benefit by having the protection of the ants whilst the ants feed off the honeydew the aphids produce. They sort of milk them and they herd them and look after them and they move them around as well to make sure that they're feeding well and they're in a safe place. It, it's, it's just amazing to think of these little battles and systems that are playing out in every corner of the plot. However, as cool as it is, if the ladybirds and the lacewings and any other predators can't keep on top of the little blighters, then I have to get involved. So I've been squirting the leaves with a little water sprayer filled with rainwater to physically knock off the aphids and try to keep on top of their numbers. Anyway, back to the hop structure. It turns out that as well as the canes I've used in the pole being affected by the wind and the rain, so are the coir strings that the hops are growing up. These were getting slowly stretched week by week, very gently, only very slightly at a time. But I went away for the weekend at the start of June. Um, it was a wedding uh, in Devon, and so obviously we had heavy winds and rain as a storm came in. And the wind did quite a bit of damage, actually. It really stretched out those plants. I think the combination of high wind, uh, that increased weight, and the leaves catching in the wind really pulled on the lines. And as they were wet, they stretched, and this caused the all of the lines really to droop down. But one in particular, the, the main fuggles, my best fastest growing of the hot vines uh, sagged down to such a point that it began to rub and move with the wind on the edge of the cloche which is a fairly sharp plastic edging and this basically meant that it sheared through and it killed it so i lost my strongest best hop my my real hope for getting the most cones this early on in the season and it's completely dead. I can see it already starting to shrink and, and die back and I've had to cut it down and remove it as best I can. It, it's the first real moment of danger, really, a distinct step towards that most ominous of cinema warnings, the mild peril. It's nothing critical, it's not life-threatening, I don't think, but I was very happy uh, to welcome a visit from my local hop farmer, Wyndham, to give me some advice and assess the situation. Wyndham, thank you for coming down. You're very welcome, Ben. We're going to have to skip the niceties. Uh, how oh, how does it look? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, they are up, and I am pleased to see they haven't perished. Uh, they're hanging on. I think you've got, you've done quite well. I think you've got these. This is not the ideal place, nor even really a sensible place in which <laughs> to grow hops. It's extremely exposed, uh, but if we can keep disease at bay and aphid predation minimised, we will probably end up with enough hops to uh, make the, the amount of beer you're interested in. Okay. We hope. Good. That, that, I that is good news. Um, How has the recent weather affected the plants? They are doing really quite well under those conditions, frankly. The uh, Apart from that damage over there. Yeah. Um, That's the one that rubbed. Yes. Uh, hung down and yes, rubbed. Yes. It is the wind which is going to be the major problem for you. We are quite exposed up here. Um, 
And you just yes. mentioned just then, before we started speaking, yes. uh, about removing the leaves at the bottom of the plants. Oh, yes. That, that's a tactic to uh, minimise the risk of downy mildew, which generally begins at ground level and comes up. So if you remove the foliage at the bottom, there's less chance of it getting going. And it's, um, it's that stuff which will get colonised first, usually. Okay. Usually. And then the aphids as well. You mentioned I should just continue squirting merrily, as I have been every couple of days, to the top of the plant to try and keep that population down. Unless you see aphid uh, predators on it, um, ladybirds, base wings and so forth, anthocorids. If you see those, of course, yep. you have to let them have their way. Okay. And they will then multiply and, you hope, control. But then you, you always have to make the judgment. If they haven't, at some stage you think late stage of the game they haven't if they're not controlling it adequately then you'll have to spray them off okay looking up at the very top then i can see where some of the the fuggles has reached the top yes. and it's now starting to, to droop back over again yes what should i do with those well i'm inclined to take it off where it's crooked oh yes i see yep see that one there yes snap it off and that will stimulate lateral growth okay Unless that is the one that was damaged, I know maybe. I have a feeling it's the one that was yeah. was sheared off. Yeah, leave the other one as it is. Okay. Well, that one, and if that one continues to grow and hangs over, take that approach with it. At the point that it, it kinks yeah, and it, it let it go up until it wants to come o over on its own account. Okay. That'll be another couple of weeks yet, I think. Okay. Um, and then what we want to avoid is a massive head that is completely colonized by aphids because then it's very difficult to get rid of them okay and that that, that could happen you've if got to have enough you've got to have enough head growth up there to get a crop yes because that is where bulk of your hops will be okay so yeah. at the moment then it is clear back the foliage from the bottom of the plants yeah keep an eye on the tension on the strings and watch the top to make sure it doesn't doesn't get too carried away and start to come back down again. Well, I'll be here again before it does that. Okay. Um, <laughs> and there is the possibility that we may have to, if it if it does get carried away, then cut a bit off. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, it it's good news that the storm hasn't done them in. Yes, you're completely. not dead yet. You're good. No, no, you're in with a chance. Excellent. You're Sounds in with good. a chance, and uh, I will certainly um, is there any advice I can. Which <laughs> might help you get there that that would be very uh, welcome but you don't have to take it <laughs> this is your project <laughs> no i'm very happy to take advice from people who know a lot more than me about hops so uh, thank you Wyndham. you're very <laughs> welcome indeed i have to say i really was quite relieved uh, once uh, Wyndham had come and visited and again pointing out that the structure is not ideal by any stretch of the imagination but that hopefully the hops will be okay and that they will yield something it's looking okay so far and that leaves us with just one more ingredient. We've sorted the water, the barley and hops as much as I can for now, at least. And that's yeast. And yeast is the one, as I've said several times, that I really struggled to get my head around. Uh, it, it's very hard to, for me at least, to work out how I'm going to collect, maybe isolate and use an ingredient that I can't even see. Its basic function is to consume the sugars in the later stages of brewing, uh, in the fermentation. And as it does this, it creates a number of byproducts, really. Uh, 
The first one of these I think everyone knows about is alcohol. Now, alcohol can get you a bit tipsy depending on how much you drink, but it can also actually affect the physical sensation uh, of, of drinking the beer. Uh, for example, when you get a, a strong beer, so say something like a barley wine, a very strong IPA or an icebox, things that are getting towards 10% or above, the alcohol can actually cause a physical tingling or warming feel in the mouth. Now, another byproduct, uh, carbon dioxide. That's really important too because that gives us the bubbles and the fizz within the beer which has a big impact on the mouthfeel too. But something that not everybody knows is that yeast can have a really big role to play in the flavour of that finished beer. Now some styles are chosen to have a very clean fermentation profile in that they impart little in the way of flavour or impact on that final beer, something like a perhaps a lager. Um, but there are some styles of beer, say, say a German wheat beer, those bring a whole range of different flavours with them. Uh, they can be anything from banana to clove to bubblegum. It's really quite impressive. Now, as I said a little bit earlier on, yeast is the tricky one because it's, I'm trying to find something which I can't see, I can't touch, and I also need to isolate a particular variety or strain as well. One of the options that was available was to do uh, natural fermentation or wild fermentation. And that is that after we've boiled up that wort, we just leave the beer out. We let natural yeasts and bacteria get into it and start to ferment and eat through those sugars. But the problem with this is it takes time. It takes a very long time to develop the complex uh, and brilliant flavours. And I, ju I just don't have that much time. So I need to find a particular strain, something like Saccharomyces cerevisiae, one of these regularly used domesticated brewing yeasts. Luckily though, I think I found a way to solve this problem. It's quite clear that I don't know what I'm doing, but I have found somebody that knows a lot more than me. In fact, I've found two people, uh, Guy Leonard and David Milner, both work in the University of Exeter's Living Systems Institute, and they have very kindly agreed to help me find that all elusive yeast. So I'm here, in the LSI, the Living Systems Institute at the University of Exeter, uh, with David Milner and Guy Leonard. Hello. Hi. <laughs> so I popped in yesterday and you gave me 20 tubes to take away. And this morning at half six, I was on the allotment cutting various bits of flowers and plants and berries away. How are we going to turn these squashed berries or cut up barley leaf into something that I can then put into the brewing process and make alcohol? What happens next? Um, so basically, we're going to take the samples which have um, small bits of fruit or leaf, and hopefully those will have yeast on. So the yeast should hopefully be now in the liquid that, in the tubes that we gave you. So what we're going to do is we're going to try and get rid of all of the bacteria in there by treating with enzymes that kill bacteria. And then we're going to um, take the liquid and put it onto plates, so agar plates, which are really rich for growing yeast, and treat it with antibiotics to kill any other bacteria in there. So hopefully we'll be able to purify just the yeast from your samples. Okay, what's the next stage? Once you've isolated that yeast culture, what happens next? So I hopefully we'll have a lot of different yeast colonies that appear on the agar. So what we'll do is we'll grow those up, and we'll have a look down the microscope, see if they actually look like yeast, and then we'll be able to grow them in culture and extract the DNA from them and use the DNA to figure out exactly what species of yeast we have. And that's where you come in, guys, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. So once we've got the DNA back from the sequencing lab, we can take the strings of yeast 
D's, G's, and C's, and search them in a big database. So there are lots of databases um, all over the world. Um, people have been sequencing many different strains and species of yeast, and other fungus, different forms of life. And we can take ours or yours from your sample and then plug it into this database and it should return with a top hit, so the best nearest match to something else that has already been sequenced. Okay. Are we going to end up with a yeast exactly like the commercially used domesticated strain? Probably not. Okay. Um, we will definitely get a yeast um, and it will probably do fermentation and that's something we'll test uh, in the lab as well. We can test you know, how well it's eaten sugar and what chemicals it's outputting. Um, and we can even test it on a small couple of batches before we do a proper big brew. Um, so it won't, it won't be ones like brewers have had in their uh, brewing cultures for hundreds of years, but um, it would definitely be related to them. Um, but it won't have been selected for the sort of flavor profiles that you want in sort of commercial beers, whether it's you know a yeast for a lager or yeast for ale, or different compounds that will express different esters. This might be a little more funky, a little bit more <laughs> sour perhaps, um, but it, it should be drinkable. So how long does the whole process take from right now giving you these samples to having a usable yeast at the end? Probably a couple of weeks, yeah, two weeks. I imagine we should have an idea of whether we actually have Saccharomyces cerevisiae in culture. That's great. We've got a few months until the brew day. What's the best thing to do with that yeast once you've isolated it? Um, so we can frozen stock them, so basically freeze them at minus 80 degrees. Okay, that's cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that will mean that we can long-term store it until, until needed. We could also try passaging it through high concentrations of glucose. What does um, that mean? Basically culturing multiple cultures through um, through rounds of glucose so that we can optimize, sort of evolve it on a small scale so it's adapted to, to grow under high glucose concentrations oh, so and high sugar. Refine it so it's more effective when it comes to the actual brew. Yeah, well, you can end. definitely try that. Yeah, okay. Well, that all sounds not only extremely cool, but also something I would not be able to do on my own on the allotment. Uh, so, thank you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> A big thank you to David and Guy there. Now it's worth pointing out that the help they are providing is way, way beyond anything I could do myself. And it is definitely the least DIY of all the tasks I've got in front of me. And that's not just because I don't know how to isolate a yeast culture, but because I don't have the equipment either. Spinning the samples at 13,000 G, DNA profiling and freezing things at minus 80 degrees centigrade requires some seriously impressive kit. Kit that Richard simply does not have. Now, of course, none of it guarantees that we'll be able to find the yeast we need, but the search for yeast has gone from being a vague unknown to something very, very cool indeed. And if you want to see the photos of that equipment or of the journey so far of the plot of me, of Richard, of everything, then each of these episodes has got its own page on growingbeer.co.uk. So you can see some videos and the photos that, that really show you what's been happening so far, rather than just having to listen to me going on about it. Now, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. But before I talk about what will hopefully be coming up next time, I have a slight favour to ask, please. If you're enjoying this podcast so far, please do give it a review and a rating on iTunes or whichever service you use to download Growing Beer. Um, tweets and shares on social media are also great. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, all at Growing Beer or slash Growing Beer. Because obviously, don't get me wrong, you are my favourite listener. 
but it would be absolutely great to get the word out so as many people can can find out about this project and, and follow us on the journey really so anyway next time we shall be edging towards harvest by the end of july fingers crossed the barley should be nice and golden and i'll be able to see what kind of a crop i might be getting out of it the hops should be starting to make an appearance on the vine hopefully the water butt will now be filling up since i've closed the tap and i will find out from guy and david if there's been any luck in finding that all-important Saccharomyces cerevisiae strain. It's all getting a bit tense now, isn't it? Goodbye. Goodbye.